I'm going to ask you to find two passages of Scripture. The first is in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15. And the second is in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4. And as you are turning there, let me remind you of a story with which perhaps you have some familiarity. Perhaps you have heard this one. There was a man, apparently, years ago, fell off a cliff. And as he was going over the edge, he managed to reach out his hand and grab hold of a branch. And there he was swinging at the cliff's edge, hanging on for dear life to this branch. He realized he was in no condition to pull himself back up to the ledge. He could not do it, no matter how hard he tried. And so eventually he called out, is there anyone up there who can help me? A voice suddenly boomed back, I am here, I can help you, but first you must let go of that branch. The man considered his options and then called out anew, is there anyone else up there who can help me? Now, we might chuckle at that, but I'm going to pick a fight right from the outset. My friends, that is you, and that is me. We want someone to save us by helping us to save ourselves. Let me repeat it. We want someone to save us by helping us to save ourselves. Let me come at it from a slightly different angle. October 31st, we're going to celebrate Reformation Day. We will celebrate it on November 2nd. We're going to have our church anniversary here, I think 15 years since our inception. And we will also celebrate Reformation Day. And I'm uh, preparing a lecture for Reformation Day. And so this past week, I was going through some of my archives some of these piles, stacks of notes and pages I have in my office and got off on this tangent and that tangent and then something caught my attention. Little quotations I have from the medieval ages, uh, theological quotations, little snippets of how people used to think, how they, they viewed their relationship with God. And this one grabbed my attention. Here it is. God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. That was a very popular saying in the medieval era. God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. In other words, in slightly different terms, salvation is a cooperative effort. It is God's grace, our effort in cooperation, trying to achieve or arrive at that ultimate goal, which is the salvation of our soul. We don't use that phrase anymore today. God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. We have a very common phrase of our own coined recently. Here it is. God helps those who help themselves. That one's a little more familiar to us, isn't it? God helps those who help themselves. Here are some statistics from a recent survey among evangelicals. 50% of evangelicals, 50%, if I weren't giggling, I would probably pull my hair out, 
of born-again, professing born-again evangelicals think that is a biblical quotation. 84% most certainly believe it is a biblical idea. It most certainly is not. We must let go of the branch. Uh, The old theologians, the reformers, they spoke of the gospel and said, it is monergistic, meaning what? It is only of God. It is God's work from beginning to end and all in between. It is of grace from start to finish. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 4. Look at how he begins this chapter. It's a question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? It's an interesting question on many different levels, but here's why it should strike us as interesting, simply because because of of its nature. Why does Paul ask this question? Uh, Why is he interested? Why does it matter? Why Why does he care? Why should we care? And why does he ask it at this juncture? Well, the answer is rather simple. In the latter part of chapter three, he has explained what? He has articulated in very clear terms, that precious doctrine of justification and what it means to be justified in God's sight by grace through faith in Christ. He has demonstrated that God justifies us in Christ. It is all of Christ. He justifies us on the basis of Christ's substitutionary life, the perfect life he lived in fulfillment to the law, and he justifies us on the basis of Christ's substitutionary death. That death whereby he bore the penalty of the law in our place. And so when we become one with Christ through faith, we are declared what? Just, righteous in the sight of God. Clothed with Christ's righteousness. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. It is in Christ alone. Having immediately explained that, Paul asks this question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Why does he ask it? He asks it because he's Jewish and he knows how Jews think and he knows exactly how his fellow countrymen think. They are going to trip over this. They are going to land, fall face down on the ground. This will be the stumbling block, the stumbling stone, Christ, the free grace of God in Christ received through faith. They will trip over it. Because they have embedded in their understanding, their worldview, that no, it is a cooperative effort. That yes, God's grace is involved. They never would have denied that. But we, for our part, must do this. We, on our part, must perform that. And so there is this cooperation between grace and works, whereby we are received in the sight of God. So Paul says, no, my friends, oh, no, my fellow countrymen. And let me just, let me just with one swoop, let me just put this idea to the side once and for all. And let me do so by simply pointing you to a man. You all know him. He's our physical forefather, Abraham. His point is this. If I can prove to you, my fellow countrymen, that Abraham agrees with what I've just said. If I can prove to you that Abraham was justified by grace through faith in Christ, then, then you must take seriously what I'm saying. And so that's all Paul does here in the fourth chapter. 
And so in the first section, which really begins in verse 2 through to verse 8, he demonstrates that Abraham was justified apart from works. And so look at the second verse. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Why? For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That first point continues through to verse 8. And then Paul develops a second point in verse 9. It goes as far as verse 12. And here he demonstrates that Abraham was justified apart from circumcision. Look at the ninth verse. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Here's the question. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, circumcision never entered into it. Again, that argument continues to the 12th verse. And then he heaps another argument on, a third one, beginning in verse 13, goes as far as verse 17, more or less, grant me a little latitude here, and here's his third argument. Abraham was justified apart from the law. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And he wraps that argument up again, more or less in verse 17. Three key arguments as he points the Jews, his countrymen, to Abraham to prove that the doctrine of justification, which he has explained in the latter part of chapter 3, is perfectly consistent with the scriptures. It is perfectly consistent with Abraham. It is not Paul who has deviated from the faith. They have deviated from the faith. And this great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was exactly how their greatest forefather, Abraham, was saved. But he doesn't finish there. He is not finished with Abraham. In verse 18, he continues to point to that great patriarch, that great forefather. And here he brings his entire argument to a head. And he says, look, if you want to know what faith is, if you want to know what this faith looks like, this faith by which we are justified, just look to Abraham. And beginning in the 18th verse, he gives us a description of Abraham's faith. Follow along as I read from the word of God. In hope, he, that's Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, 
who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There you have it, the prototype of faith, the model of saving faith. To understand Paul's description of Abraham's faith in those verses, we need to dabble in the context. And so what was the other passage of scripture I asked you to find right at the outset? You thought I had forgotten about it. Genesis chapter 15. And so turn back there just for a moment and follow along as I read the first six verses. And in your own mind's eye, try to connect the dots in Paul's reasoning. Try to construct the bridge from this ancient text written thousands of years before Paul ever arrived on the scene. The bridge between this text and what he is arguing for in Romans 4. So here we have it again. The word of the Lord, Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things. The word of the Lord came to Abram. So his name has not yet been changed to Abraham. It comes later. Right now he's called Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, that's Abram. Believe the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. Let me sum it up quickly. And I need to do this quickly in four words. First word is this. And I believe I included these on your sermon notes. First word is this. Reward. Look at what we read in the very first verse. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. A command. Fear not, Abram. Why? Here's a promise, a declaration. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What is the context? Look again at the very first three words. After these things. What things? What we have just read of in Genesis 14. What do we read of? What do we learn in Genesis 14? Abraham gets stuck basically in a civil war. There is this alliance of kings who invade the land of Canaan. They defeat the four or five kings of the land where Abraham resides. And Abraham just kind of minding his own business. And this conflict rages all around him. These kings that invade, they're victorious. They take captives, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. When Abraham receives the news, when he hears words, he gathers his servants, I think 300, 318 men, And he goes off in pursuit of this alliance of kings. He's victorious. He returns to his home. On his way back home, he meets two kings. This is interesting. Firstly, he meets the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. 
Verse 18 of chapter 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, El Elyon, the strongest of the strongest, the mightiest of the mighty. And he, that is Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high. Notice this next phrase. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So that's Abram's first encounter when he returns home. His second encounter is with the king of Sodom. His name is Bera. And what happens in verse 21? The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. What's Abram's response? Verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. After These things, these two encounters, what happens? The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Why is he afraid? We don't know. I'm guessing a little bit, but sanctified guessing. Maybe he's thinking, well, I defeated those kings, but you know, they're going to go get some friends and they're going to come back. This isn't over. This is just the start of some sort of major international conflict here. And so he's gripped with fear. Fear not, Abram. Why? I am your shield. It harkens back to what Melchizedek said, whereby he announces that Abram is blessed by God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And it was God who had given Abram the victory over those kings. It is God who is watching over Abram, and it is God who will provide for Abram. And then look at the second part of the promise. Your reward shall be very great. It harkens back to the second king, because king of Sodom, he offers Abram all the spoil. And what's Abram's response? I don't want anything of yours. He has lifted his hand to whom? To the Lord. He is looking to whom? God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And now building on those experiences, God comes with bountiful grace, revealing himself to Abraham. I am your shield, pledging himself, committing himself to Abraham. Your reward shall be very great, and it will all be of grace. Now notice, secondly, the question. But Abram said, he hears that word reward, and his mind starts going like 90. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You know, I I remember we had an encounter. We read it back in Genesis 12. You made some pretty outstanding promises, something about a great nation, something about offspring. Now here you're talking again about a reward. But here's, here's I'm coming at it from my angle. I don't even have a son And so what is it you're going to give me? Verse 3, behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. His servant, Eliezer, will inherit everything Abraham has. Now notice the promise. Here it comes, fourth verse. And behold, the word of the Lord. Second time we read that expression, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, he's referring to Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son. Biological. Your very own son from your own loins shall be your 
air. And he brought him outside. Here's the second part of the promise. Look toward heaven. I can only imagine what it was like in that nomadic rural setting back in that day, free, void of any false or external lights, as he gazed up at that cloudless sky during the night and beheld those stars in all of their glory. Look toward heaven and number the stars. I like to insert things once in a while as I read the scriptures. I'm not claiming any inspiration, but I kind of insert there. Good luck with that. Good luck with numbering them, Abraham. Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's what it's going to be like. And then look at the response. Sixth verse. He, Abram, believed the Lord. He believed God. He believed God's promise concerning his son, his descendants, because he believed God. He knew his God. God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Now flip all the way back. That's the context for Romans chapter 4. Verses 18 through 25. Look at how Paul begins here. And he drives us back to the text we've just considered. He does so very intentionally. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. That is a strange statement. That's an understatement. That is an utterly strange statement. In hope, he believed against hope. Hold that thought. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, and here's a direct quotation, so shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. Notice four things. First is this. Abraham believed against hope. We could translate that as follows, and probably more consistent with the way we would speak, Abraham believed beyond hope was well beyond hope. It's just completely unbelievable what God has promised, humanly speaking. And Paul expands on this in the 19th verse. He did not, that is Abraham, did not weaken in faith when what? He took stock of things. He considers a couple of things. He considered his own body. He realizes what? I'm an old man. I'm as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, he can, something else catches his attention. Or when he considered in the rest of the verse, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham is a realist. He's a realist. He does not deny his circumstances. He doesn't ignore what's going on around him. He knows who he is. He knows how old he is. He knows how old Sarah is. And he knows they are well past it when it comes to having children. But he believed against hope. He believed beyond what was humanly possible. And look at the second thing. He believed in hope. Brings us into verse 20. No distrust made him waver. Concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. He did not weaken in his faith. We read that in verse 19, but he strengthened in his faith as he gave glory to God. Why? Because not only did Abraham consider his circumstances, 
But Abraham considered his God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There's no issue here. He does not weaken in faith. He grows strong in faith. Why? Because Abraham simply contemplates reality. Reality. And he looks at his circumstances. And he knows, humanly speaking, there is absolutely no way we can bring about the accomplishment or the fulfillment of this promise. But he is a realist. And so he looks secondly at whom? At his God. Context, Genesis 14. Who is this God? He is God most high. It's El Elyon in the Hebrew. The strongest of the strongest. The mightiest of the mighty. He is the one who possesses heaven and earth. And so Abraham is what? Verse 21. He's fully convinced. Well, if God said it, God can do it. He believed against hope, in hope. Notice thirdly, verse 22, Abraham was counted righteous. Exactly what we have in the 22nd verse. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham himself was not a righteous man. At times we forget this. When God called Abram, as he was named at the time, out of the land of Ur. So you think of the Euphrates River right down at its basin. There is Ur. And God called Abram from the land of Ur. Abram made his way up the Euphrates to a place called Haran. And then eventually he made it into the land of Canaan. But when God, after the Tower of Babel, remember that entire incident in Genesis chapter 11, when God then, according to his eternal plan of redemption, honed in on Abram and called him, it was not because Abram was a righteous man. It's not because Abram was a godly man. It's not because Abram stood out from the rest of humanity because of his performance. And how good he was and how nice he was. Scripture makes it clear that when God called Abram, Abram was an idolater just like everyone else in the land of Ur. It was grace operative. It was grace acting. It was by grace that God revealed himself to Abram, called him, and grace made those marvelous promises, pledging himself to Abram, revealing his full identity to him, who he is, this full extent of the fact, this reality, that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. And Abram, as he fixates on that promise and understands something of the salvation that would come through his descendants, and as he interacts with a God who is coming at him in grace, he believes. He does not come with his hands clenched, look at what I have done. He does not come with his fists clenched, claiming any merit or anything before God. He simply comes to God as God has approached him in grace. He comes to God through faith and God reckons it to him as righteousness. It is an alteration. It is a change. It is a radical shift in Abraham's legal standing in God's sight. From that moment, God treated Abraham as though he was righteous. Not that he was in himself, but God treated him as though, as if he were 
righteous. Here is the essence of the doctrine of justification. And please hear these words clearly. God declares us righteous before we begin to become righteous. I almost said, forget everything that's gone before and forget everything I'm about to say. Don't do that. But do hone in on that one single phrase. Here it is again. God declares us righteous before we begin to become righteous. God's declaration is not his response to anything good in us. God's declaration is not his response to any spiritual advance made by us. God's declaration is not his response to any moral virtue found in us. At the moment we trust Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness, meaning we are judged blameless even though we are still sinful. That is the doctrine of justification. It was Luther who said at the same time, just and sinner. That's who we are at the same time, just and sinner. We are justified sinners in the sight of God. When we speak of justification, And I have been trying by God's grace and God's help to emphasize this for the past month now. When we speak of justification, we are not referring to any change in us. We are not referring to any alteration in us. We are not referring to any transformation in us. Remember the words of Romans 4, 5. God justifies The ungodly, it is a change in our legal status. It is an alteration in our legal standing, not in us, but as we stand judicially before a righteous God, that the sentence is changed from guilty to innocent. And the sentence is changed from death to life. Why? Because we are one with his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled the requirement of the law for us, who has paid the penalty of the law for us. We are made one with him through faith. And because we are one with Christ, God now treats us as if we had lived the life of Christ. He treats us as if we had died his death. A complete alteration, transformation, change to our legal status, standing, condition in God's sight. And it is received through faith. We bring nothing to it. Like Abraham, there he is, the prototype of faith. We simply look to God, a God who deals with us bountifully and graciously. And we believe God's promise to forgive our sins because we believe God. And we believe he has the power to accomplish all that he has promised. And that brings us to the fourth point. Abraham is an example for us. Paul begins to articulate this in the 23rd verse. But the words... 
And so he's quoting from Genesis 15, 6. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Well, they I mean they were for his sake. Undoubtedly, that was a, a glorious truth when it began to dawn upon his understanding. But they were written for what? Verse 24. For ours also. Why? Because this righteousness, this alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, this alteration in our judicial standing before God, it will be counted to us. It will be. Who believe in him, that is God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And look at this twofold emphasis of Christ's work in the 25th verse. First emphasis, he was delivered up for on behalf of our trespasses. Again, that's propitiation. That God displayed, Christ, propiti- uh, God displayed Christ as a propitiation by his blood. And Christ, when he hung upon Calvary's cross, our sin reckoned to him. The wrath of God falling upon him. He bore the penalty for our sin in full. He was delivered up, handed over for our trespasses. Here's the second aspect. And he was raised, praise God, for our justification. How do I know? How do I know God will receive me? How do I know God will accept me? How do I know God is really pleased with me because I am one with Christ, his beloved? How do I know that Christ's work upon Calvary's cross, all that the scriptures say, testify to, all that the scriptures say he accomplished there, how do I know this was pleasing, acceptable in God's sight? One simple historical truth, reality. God raised him from the dead. And he was raised for our justification. Through his resurrection, we have the absolute certainty that God accepts his son's work on behalf of his people unto their salvation. Abraham believed against hope. Abraham believed in hope. Abraham was counted righteous. And Abraham is an example for us. Go all the way back to the very first verse of the chapter. Here's the question that set it all off. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What did Abraham ever gain by his own effort? What what did Abraham ever contribute to his salvation? No, he was justified apart from works. He was justified apart from circumcision, any rites or ceremonies. He was justified apart from the law. He was justified through faith in Christ. Years ago, as a young boy, a Christmas tradition that my sisters had, and they forced me to partake in. Every Christmas, December 25th afternoon, sound of music on the television. I actually kind of like it, but that's another story. Sound of music, and I was, uh, don't ask why, I was reflecting on the sound of music this past week, and one line in particular, when Maria realizes that the captain has romantic interests, romantic designs for her, she sings, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could, but somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's what most of us think, folks, in this room. There's got to be something. Something. Something I said. Something I did. Something, just something that sets me apart 
from the masses. There is nothing. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. No, not one. What, what, what did our father Abraham, you can just picture Paul conversing with his fellow, what, what did our father Abraham ever gain by his own effort? Works? No. Circumcision? No. The law? No. He gained nothing. He believed God. And God reckoned righteousness to him. Here again, appealing to some statistics prevalent within evangelicals in our own day. Over one third of evangelicals. Born again evangelicals. Over one third of born again evangelicals in this country agree with the following statement. If a person is good or does enough good things for others during his life, he will find a place in heaven. That is a false I'm going to use a stronger word. That is a damning gospel. It is a damning gospel. That is not justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What specifically do we learn from Abraham's example? I'm going to give you three, three great lessons. We learn from Abraham, the prototype of biblical faith. Here's lesson number one. The object of faith is God. That's obvious. Abraham considers his circumstances. He considers his conditions. He's 100 years old. Sarah, she's barren. There's absolutely no way physically, materially, humanly speaking, they can ever accomplish this promise. At the same time, God contemplates his God. Abraham focuses on God. Faith focuses on facts about God. We despair at the state of the world. We despair at times at the state of the church. We despair at temptation. We despair at tribulation. We despair at the state of our family. We despair at the loss of health. We despair at the prospect of death. At times, these things are mind-numbing and soul-crushing. We are realists. We do not deny the reality of these things. We do not deny the pain and suffering that hang upon these things. But in the midst of it all, we consider the facts concerning our God. He is God most high. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is particularly true when it comes to the doctrine of justification. I mean, given my circumstances, it's hopeless. To be justified in God's sight. To be considered, I mean, this is, this is, this is startling. To, to be viewed as perfectly obedient before an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Given my circumstances, that's pie in the sky. Given what I know to be true, that is utterly impossible. I look around at my sinfulness. I look around at the darkness of my mind. I look around at the inclinations of my heart. In the midst of it all, I waver and my knees weaken. No, you see, faith is fixed on God. Fixed on God who he is. Fixed on God what he has said. One of the old reformers, David Perias, said the following. Doubt has two arguments. Number one, will God do this? Number two, can God do this? Faith has two arguments. Number one, 
God will do it because he has promised to. Number two, God can do it because he is omnipotent. There is the first truth concerning biblical faith we derive from Abraham. The object of faith is God. Here's a second lesson. The rule of faith is God's word. Twice in that context, Genesis 15, we read that the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Abraham wasn't just simply submitting his wish list to God. Abraham wasn't simply saying, well, look, this is what I would like. This is what I feel like. This is what kind of appeals to me. God, can you pull this off? I really, really, really think you can. That's not biblical faith, and that's not Abraham's faith. It's the word of the Lord that comes to Abraham. It is God who informs Abraham. It is God's word that shapes and molds Abraham. It is specifically his promises to Abraham. They are the object of Abraham's faith. God has not, important for us to hear this, God has not promised us immunity from debilitating illness. He has not promised us immunity from civil strife. He has not promised us immunity from personal loss. He has not promised us immunity from death. God has not promised us a perfect family. He has not promised us a perfect career. He has not promised us a perfect life. God has not promised us a life free of disorder. He has not promised us a life free of discomfort. He has not promised us a life free of discouragement. Oh, how we must allow the word of God to formulate and to inform our judgments and understanding as to what it is exactly God has promised. He has promised to remember my sins no more. Amen. He's promised to cast my sins from his sight. He's promised to seal me with the Holy Spirit of promise, a pledge of a future glorious inheritance. He has promised to work all things together for my good, my spiritual good, namely my sanctification, my conformity to the likeness of Christ. He has promised to protect me and preserve me from ultimate evil. What is ultimate evil? Separation from him. There's nothing worse than that. He has promised to guard my soul. He has promised that nothing in heaven or hell will be able to snatch me from the palm of his hand. He has promised me that a new heavens and a new earth is coming. He has promised me that I possess the kingdom of heaven already by right. And a day is coming when the king returns that I will enter into it by experience. These are the things he has promised me. And these are the things I focus upon. And these are the promises I take to heart. When I take these promises to heart, many of them future. Do you know what that is? That's hope. That's true biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that we will get everything that's coming to us because an almighty God has promised it. Abraham, he teaches us that. The rule of faith is God's word. And here's the third lesson finally, and with this I conclude. The result of faith is God's glory. We read that in the text, Romans 4. Abraham grew strong in faith. What was the result? He gave glory to God. 
I'm going to quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and with this I will end. He sums it up beautifully. Because it was God who had spoken and God who had promised, Abraham says, nothing else need be considered at all. Oh, what a wonderful way this is of looking at faith. Faith is to believe God simply and solely because he is God. Nothing glorifies God more than this. Our Father, we do pray even now for the illumination of our minds and the softening of our hearts to understand your word as it has been presented to us this day. As we have delved into its teachings, as we have delved into its instructions, we have tasted something of its sweetness and seen something of its riches. And we pray now that by your spirit, you would give us those eyes to see and those ears to hear and those precious hearts to receive. We pray that you would strengthen faith in us as we look by your word, by your spirit to our great savior, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we earnestly intercede for any gathered here this very moment who as of yet stands outside of Christ, that you might prick the conscience, that by the Spirit you might bring them to an awareness and full sight of their sin and show them that there is forgiveness of sin, the hope of eternal life and fellowship with a glorious God to be found in one place, one person alone, that of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.